Well, church, I want to encourage you to remain standing as we read from God's word this morning, which comes from the book of Esther, chapter 8. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who were all in the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews." in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day, and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language and also to the Jews in their script in their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. The word of the Lord. Church, you may be seated. Well, I, I, I do love Baby Dedication Sunday, and, and I wasn't going to share this. I don't think I've ever shared this publicly from the stage, but one of my most vivid memories at Christ Community is a baby dedication. Some of y'all are already laughing. So I had been here just a couple of months, and I don't know what we were thinking, but we went ahead and dedicated Abigail, in the middle of the prayer, one of my sons goes up to another son and just punches him in the stomach as hard as he can. 
And then my older son, who's like the drama guy, he just went, oh, and starts rolling on the ground. And then my son starts hitting him in the head, clubbing him in the head during the prayer. That's why we almost stopped streaming services. And I pulled both kids up by the back of their shirt. And then the prayer ended. I said, amen. I was like, it was on Mother's Day. And we go outside. We didn't have any family in town. We just had a baby. We didn't really have a ton of friends. We were new to the place. And I find Victoria sitting by herself in a room crying. She's like, this is the worst Mother's Day. We don't know anybody. Our kids are punching each other. And I sat next to her and I was just like, oh, man, I love you. I said, but I, I actually have to go preach. So I'll be back in like 40 minutes. And so then I came in here and preached, and that was our first baby dedication. You know what I mean? But we didn't think we were going to last six months. But so if your kid was crying, they're fine. They're in good shape. But it's just a tremendous blessing to dedicate those babies. And, and before we dig into this morning's passage, I just, I do want to encourage you, if you were not here last week for Vision Sunday, to try to find some time and go back and, and listen or watch last week's message. It was a special Sunday for our church, an important Sunday, and it's one that um, you'll want to hear, to kind of hear about where we are as a church and where we hope to be going in the years to come. Well, in August, we began our journey in this magnificent little book of the Old Testament called the Book of Esther. And so, as, you know, to use a baseball illustration with the World Series going on, as we kind of round third and enter into the final couple chapters, the reality is a lot has happened. I mean, a lot has taken place over the course of the entire story. And, and honestly, a lot has taken place just in the, the events preceding what we just read. Because if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, it was really one of the monumental moments of the book. Esther finally comes clean about who she is. So she gathers Haman, she gathers the king, her husband, and she lays out the facts, and here are the facts. I'm a Jew. Because of that, I am set to die because there's an edict that's in place to wipe out my people. And oh, by the way, it was written by that evil guy right there, Haman, who's your right-hand man, king. And so the king, I mean, she just puts it out there, you know? And so the king hears it, and his response ultimately is to kill Haman. And so Haman is gone. And so chapter 7, the last verse we read in the book of Esther before coming this morning was, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. And so it's this major moment because the evil Haman is finally dead. And it almost feels like we can just go, and just exhale. Because Haman is gone, but that would be a false sense of relief. Because even though Haman is dead, the edict to kill the Jews is still in place. And so then the question arises, how is God going to intervene? How is God going to save his people? How is he going to protect the Jews? And we start to get our answer in the chapter we just read here in chapter eight. And much like I did Last time we met, I want to break this chapter up into kind of four parts or four sections that help us understand how it unfolds. 
and we'll just pick up some observations and some applications as we go. But the way the, way the chapter kind of reveals itself or rolls out, is, or at least what I'm describing it is, is the reward, the request, the response, and the result. So that's kind of how we're going to walk through. There's the reward, the request, the response, and the result. And so let's, let's start with the reward. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. It says, On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So like, here's the situation. Haman has just died. I mean, he may still be on the gallows, but life comes at you fast, you know? So what are we going to do with this stuff? What are we going to do with all Haman's stuff? Because in Persian law, and it was like this in much of antiquity, if, if you're a tr- when a traitor died, their possessions go directly to the king. And, and what we know from previous chapters is Haman is what? He's wealthy. He's really rich. And so when Haman dies, he's declared a traitor, and his possessions go to the king. What does the king do with it? Well, he looks at Queen Esther and he says, hey, I love you. And you have suffered immensely at the hands of this evil guy. And so I'm going to take his wealth and I'm going to give it to you. It now belongs to you. And so just like that, Esther assumes Haman's wealth. And just like that, Esther becomes super wealthy. She becomes rich. And then we go to Mordecai. Because now she doesn't just have a room in the palace, she has a mansion in the city. And then to make matters worse for Haman, which is kind of hard because he's dead on the gallows. But to make matters worse, it's not just that he loses his, his wealth to Esther, he's going to lose his position to Mordecai. He's going to lose his position to Mordecai. Esther tells the king, look, let me come clean about some more stuff. Mordecai, he's not just like an acquaintance. He's not just some random friend I have. He's family. And he raised me. He's like my father. And and the king goes, man, Mordecai is like, you saved my life. You raised my wife. You belong with me in the palace. And he takes the ring that he had given Haman, the signet ring that he had taken from Haman before he died. I'll I'll take that, please, you know. And he places it on Mordecai. And he makes him his right-hand man. He's his number two. He's his prime minister. And, and, And so at this point, the total reversal has taken place. Which is one of the big themes of Esther is, is how God reverses situations. But a total reversal has taken place because in the last 24 hours, here's what's happened. Haman dies on the gallows that he designed for Mordecai. Haman's wealth goes to Esther. And Esther t- makes Mordecai the overseer of that wealth. And so just in 24 hours, Mordecai assumes Haman's wealth and he assumes Haman's position as Haman hangs on the gallows that he designed for Mordecai. It's this great reversal 
between those two individuals. And so when we finish the first two verses of chapter 8, Esther and Mordecai find themselves in a pretty enviable position. Here's the deal. They're rich. They're powerful. They're safe. And they're set. They're rich, they're powerful, they're safe, they're set. Which makes what they do next so surprising and significant. It's, it's really beautiful because next we have the request. If you look at verse 3, and really through 6 or so, but we'll look at verse 3. It says, then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot he had devised against the Jews. And in a, in a story where there's a lot of beautiful moments, right? This is one of my favorites. I think this is a beautiful moment by Esther because here's the deal. Esther's mission is not done just because she and Mordecai are safe. Her mission's not done. So here she is again at the feet of King Ahasuerus pleading for the life of her people. And she's been there before, but this time is different. Why? Why is this time different? Because she's in the clear. She's safe. Nothing's going to happen to her at this point. And yet here she is and she enters in. And, and, it's, one of, and it's one of these things where if it were all about her, there would be nothing more to do. That's what I'm trying to say. If it was all about her, there'd be nothing more to do because she would say, well, I'm just going to go to the palace and I'm going to live my queen life and I've got a bunch of wealth and nothing's going to happen to me and what happens to them, that's not on me. I mean, she could totally retreat and just live in the cocoon of her comfort. But she's been transformed. She's been transformed by God's grace She's all in on God's mission, and so she makes this request knowing she could lose that which she just gained. She's been transformed. And, and, and people who have been transformed by God's grace, here's the thing, they no longer view, them, view their lives about themselves. When, when you've been transformed by God's grace, you recognize that your life is not about you that there's something bigger, that there's something far greater, that there's something much, much bigger than just your personal comfort or your personal success. And Esther has realized that, and she is living that out. When we've been transformed by grace, there's an outward-focused, other-oriented disposition. I had, um, you'll, you'll, you probably have this in your phone sometimes, pictures, old pictures will pop up. And so I had some pictures pop up from a, about four years ago. It was 2018. We hadn't moved here. We were about to have our fourth kid, you know, the one we dedicated, that, but we don't need to go there again. And we were back in Texas, and I was like, man, and Victoria and I love to travel. That's kind of our thing. And, and I was like, it, I really started to recognize we're going to have a hard time traveling internationally pretty soon. I didn't, I mean, really, we're going to have a hard time having dinner together pretty soon, but I knew we were going to have a hard time traveling internationally, and so we had this little window. I was like, let's, let's do something, and if you know me well, you know that I love the band U2. I've seen them live 19 times, and, and it just so happened 
that they were going to do a series of shows in their hometown of Dublin, Ireland. And so I looked at Victoria and I said, bucket list, we're going to Ireland. And so we went there and I got to see one of my heroes. Here's a picture of Bono and me together at the concert. We didn't get to talk as much as I'd like. But it was a great experience, but even more meaningful, a couple of days later, I got to be in the footsteps or in the place of another one of my heroes, which is St. Patrick. And so in Dublin, you have St. Patrick's Cathedral that sits in the middle of the city, this beautiful cathedral, and there's a, there's a body of water nearby, and it's where they believe Patrick began baptizing the pagan converts when he went to Ireland. And if you know the story of Patrick, one of the great stories of church history. He was actually British, or he was, he was part of the Roman Empire, but he was living in what's modern-day England. And about the age of 16, he was captured by the crazy pagans that even the Roman Empire was like, man, those guys are nuts in Ireland. And he spends six years as a slave in Ireland. And one night he has a vision that there's a boat waiting for him, that there's a ship waiting for him, for him to escape. And so he follows this vision, he follows this dream, and he goes to the spot where he, he dreams the boat is, and there's one there. And ultimately he makes his way back home, back to his family in England. And he remains there for a number of years. And, and while he was a slave, his faith really took root. And so he gets back to England and he studies the scriptures and he goes deeper in his faith. And as he is transformed by God's grace, as God does a work in Patrick's heart, he begins to hear the voice of God saying, go back. Go back. Go back to Ireland. And so Patrick leaves the comforts of England and sets sail for the shores of Ireland where he'll spend the rest of his life evangelizing the pagans there, forever changing the trajectory of Christianity and in many ways, Western civilization. As he goes and he takes the gospel, this time not as a slave to the Irish, but as a servant of Christ, who recognizes that his life is not his own. And we don't have a ton of Patrick's writings. We have, they think, three. But in one of them, there's this quote that has always impacted me. And Patrick writes this. He says, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in the eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. He says, if I have any worth, it is to live my life for God. You see, when you're transformed by grace, your vision goes up and out, not in. And your life becomes not your own. And so even though Esther can live in the comfort of the palace, she goes back, she risks it again for her people because she's been transformed. And, and you know, very few of us will have the impact of Patrick or Esther. I mean, we get that. That's kind of a classic church illustration. Well, I'm not Esther and I'm not Patrick. But all of us, hear me, all of us are made in the image of God. And God, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God is a God who gives of himself. You recognize that. God is a God who gives of himself in creation as he invites others to participate in this thing that he has created. 
Christ gives of himself in the incarnation. As Jesus takes on flesh, he gives of himself in redemption on the cross. He gives of himself as he sends the spirit to indwell the hearts and the lives of the believers. We are made in the image of God. God is a self-giving God. And we cannot live in the fullness of life until we give our life away. We cannot live in the fullness of life until we give our life away. One of my favorite quotes is, it talks about the three paradoxes of the Christian life that you must give in order to receive, you must lose in order to possess, and you must die in order to live. It's like these paradoxes that go completely countercultural to the world we live in that says, no, it's about you, me, me, my expression, my desires, what I want, me, what makes me feel good. And yet God tells us, no, here's the deal. It's not just this is what you're supposed to do. This is where life is found. There's no fullness of life in a selfish life. The fullness of life is found when we live according to our design which is to give of ourselves sacrificially to God and to one another. And so we give in order to receive, we let go in order to possess, and we die in order to live. And this is exactly what Jesus says. So we're looking at Esther do this in in Esther chapter 8. Well, let's go to a different chapter 8. Go to Mark chapter 8, where Jesus is teaching the disciples, and this is what he says. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Giving your life away for the purposes of God is not just a better way to live, it's a better life. It's a better life. Don't miss the fullness of life because the only life you think about is your own. Don't miss out on what God has for you and what God can do in and through you. And that's what we see in chapter eight. Lives transformed. Esther and Mordecai, who now have it all, are still willing to risk it all for the sake, for the love of God and for the sake of the brethren. And this brings us to the king's response. So we have them, the reward, the request, now the response. Look at verse 7. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And so there's a couple things here that can get lost in the language. So let me kind of just help us out a bit. The king says, I mean, I've already killed Haman. That's a start, right? But then he says two things here. He says, number one, I can't change the law. This is the law of the Medes and the Persians. So even the king does not have the ability to cancel an edict or a law that has been made. So he says, number one, I can't cancel it. But number two, you can write something different. You can write something new and maybe write something that can combat the previous law that has been written. And so he looks at Mordecai and says, you got the ring. Here's the pen. Here's some paper. 
go to work. You figure it out. Write yourself a humdinger and bring it back to me because I'm going to stamp it. That's what he says. Maybe not quite like that, but that's pretty much what he says. And so, once again, don't lose sight of how unlikely this is. How um, God's superintending in the king's heart. You with me? The providence of God, the sovereignty of God. You think it looks good for a king to send out a law and then a few months later send out a completely different law that kind of contradicts the first law? It'd be like a president flip-flopping on an issue. Can you imagine that? It'd be crazy. It'd be crazy. But it'd be like an administration passing a law and then a few, minutes, a few months later passing a law that completely contradicts the law they had previously passed. So it's, and it's a bad look. And yet, Ahasuerus, that's, for whatever reason, a guy who's obsessed with pride, he's not worried about it. He's okay with it. And so he's going to allow it. As Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it as he wills. It's beautiful. And so Hazawaris is working for God. He just don't know it. He just doesn't know it. And so with this charge and this opportunity, Mordecai goes to work and he writes up a new edict. Okay? This is edict number two. Verse 10. It says, and he wrote in the name of King Hazawaris and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, verse 11, saying that the king allowed the Jews, this is what he said, who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, same language, remember that, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. And a copy of what was written was to be issued in, as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews are ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So let me give you a bit of a timeline that may help you understand what's going on. Because you hear this edict, this edict, this date, this date, that they don't use, it's not like June 14th, you know? They're using a different calendar. And so a lot of scholars have gone back and they've pieced together the dates of these edicts. And so the first edict, Haman's decree, goes out April 17th, 474 B.C. Mordecai's decree, the one we just read about, goes out June 25th. So a little over, only two months later. So our whole story is really taking place within a, not the whole story, but the last number of chapters really in a couple of months there. Okay, and so you have Mordecai's decree going out June 25th, 474, and then nine months later in March, you have the decree day of fighting, March 7th, 473. And so basically Mordecai writes up an edict and says, on the day where the Jews were to be killed by Haman, which was March 7th, 473, the Jews are going to be able to gather, defend themselves, kill whoever comes after them and take their stuff. So the, the first decree, you can kill the Jews and take their stuff. And they just, I mean, they, they ain't got a chance. The second decree is, no, they, they are going to be ready. They can gather. They can fight you on that day. And they can take your stuff when they defeat you. And so it's the way they kind of counteract that first decree. And so that is the response. And then in starting in verse 16, we see the initial result. The result which is joyful celebration 
and Gentile conversion. Look at verse 16. It says, the Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So the edict goes out, the second edict, it reaches all the provinces again, and, and it is received with, with great joy, and understandably so. Put yourself in their place. Put yourself in their shoes. Think about it for a second, or maybe I can put it this way. Let's say your whole family is feeling sick. It's your whole crew, and you went to the doctor, and the doctor ran some tests, and they came back, and they've got this, you know, they've got a bad look, and you've got this rareness, so you've got nine months to live. You've got nine months to live. And you know it. And it's right there in the test. That's the first decree. That you're going to die. And you're going to die in nine months. And that's what they were walking around with. That's what they were waking up to. That was the weight that was on their shoulders every day when they looked at their kid. Or every day when they laid their bed, laid down their be- on their bed at night on their pillow, and they looked at their spouse. They got March 7th circled, you know? It's coming. And then a couple of months later, it's as if the doctor calls you and says, You're not going to believe this incredible breakthrough. Miraculous. They have medicine for your ailment. You have hope. How would you respond? Well, that's great. Really cool. Man, my gosh. You have been given life. You have been given hope. You have been given a future. And so there's great celebration. And that's what's taking place here. Because when they receive this, they realize it's not all over. And once again, we have a scene from Esther that really in a remarkable way points to the gospel. Because think about it with me. The gospel at its core, and I think a lot of us get this wrong, or we we, we get the order wrong at least, is the gospel at its core is not God taking you from being a bad person to a good person. Like that might happen in your journey, But that's not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is not taking somebody who is bad and making them good. It's God taking someone who's dead and making them alive. It's God bringing life from death. We see that in in a text like Ephesians 2, where Paul puts it this way. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. By nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. So sin brings a death sentence. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. That's what we owe. So sin... And the death that results from it is the first decree that comes to humanity when, it, when we fall. 
is that we're born with an illness. We're born with a disease. We're born with an edict that says, you're dead and you're, separ- you're going to be separated from God because of your sin. But Christ, but God in his great mercy in which he loved us. And so here comes the second edict. And who is the second edict? It's Christ himself. He's the second edict. Because he came to bring life. And through his life, his death, and his resurrection, those who identify with him have eternal life, have a future hope that they will not ultimately be separated from God. Because on the, on the second edict, he declares, he, he says, is pay, it is finished. Paid in full. I've canceled out your debt. I have come to set you free. And I've defeated death through my death that you might live. And so you have this powerful parallel. And it doesn't even stop there. Because look at verse 17. It says, and many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. You know what that means? They saw the great reversal. They saw the great reversal that had taken place, that God had authored, and they said, maybe I should roll with this God. Like, there's something to this. And so they actually have all these conversions of people who come to follow Yahweh, who come to follow the God of Israel because they've seen the great reversal in the lives of his people. And that is still true today. Because when people see the great reversal in your life and in mine, evidenced by love for one another, compassion, integrity, Evidenced by a life where it's self-giving, not self-serving. Sacrificial, not self-preserving. When people see that and they connect that to God, there will be those who want to follow after him. There will be those that God will use your great reversal that God brought you to bring them their great reversal of death to life. Just like he does here in verse 17. And so let's live out the great reversal. Let's live as people who were dead, who are now alive. As a people who had a sentence of death, who now have the promise of eternal life. As a community transformed by grace, sent to transform the world for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. What a gift it is to know you, What a gift it is to be known by you. And on a day where we see all the new life in these children, we contemplate the new life that we have received from you. A life in Christ. As as sinners, we have an edict of death and separation. But as those who have trusted in you, because of you, We have a new life. We have a cure. We have a hope. We have someone who's gone before us and defeated our enemy that we might live in his promises. And so, Father, we thank you for just, not just the story of Esther, but the greater story it points to in so many ways. In so many ways. And so, Father, would we 
this morning. My prayer is that you would renew in us an affection for what it is that you've done for us. That we had a death sentence and now we have eternal life. That we had eternal separation but now we are a child of God. That you brought us from darkness to light. You brought us from death to life. And our promise is secure in you. And so we praise you and we thank you. Our rock, our redeemer, our Lord, our savior. And it's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.